And so I walked into my doctor's office, and again, she and I have known each other a long time, and we were playful, and I said, you know, I'm here for you to tell me that I don't have Parkinson's or ALS. And she sort of chuckled and said, well, you know, let's see what's going on. And she gave me a, an exam and made me do a number of things that neurological exams involve. And, you know, her playfulness turned pretty quickly to a more serious tone and look on her face. And she said, you know, Alan, I'm sorry, but I can't tell you you don't have Parkinson's or ALS. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. So here's the thing. 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception with the most significant loss being the death of my husband in 2011. Yet both through my personal experiences of grief and my decades as a social worker, narrative therapist, and now grief guide, I've become frustrated by just how grief illiterate we all are and the harm that's causing every single one of us. So through this show and through my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited to bring you today's conversation. Over the past few seasons of this show, I've had the incredible honor of expanding the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. And I've been doing that with guests who share their personal, philosophical, spiritual, cultural, and sometimes professional perspectives on the topic. Some of them I've just met before we record. Some are old friends. Some are colleagues, writers, filmmakers, and thinkers who I greatly admire all of whom have taught me so much through their work and through our conversations. My conversation with today's guest, Alan Cole, was a little bit of all of the above. He offers up so much warmth and wisdom as he shares the story of his diagnosis of early onset Parkinson's disease at the age of 48. The layers of loss he unpacks for an individual with a progressive illness like Parkinson's And the road to meaning-making he shares is shaped not just by his personal experiences, but also by the decades he spent as a social work educator, clinician, author, and more. In our conversation, we reference Alan's latest book, Counseling Persons with Parkinson's Disease, though he has two publications coming out around the time of the release of this episode, Discerning the Way, Lessons from Parkinson's Disease, and his first book of poetry, titled In the Care of Plenty, Poems. I'll be reading you an excerpt later in our conversation today. Today's episode is brought to you by Mirror Care Consultants. We all need help sometimes. That's a universal truth. Mirror's dedicated and compassionate staff of life care managers support their clients, their families, friends, and caregivers through their care journeys. Whether it be a progression in their decline, end of life, or the loss of a loved one, times which can be overwhelming and difficult to know just what to do with their loved one's care. Their licensed clinicians and social workers help navigate and provide solutions for care management and provide support during what can be a difficult and challenging time. 
You can learn more at www.mirrorcareconsultants.com. They even offer a free 30-minute consultation by contacting info at mirrorcareconsultants.com. You can follow them on Facebook at Mirror Care Consultants too. Alan, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation since the first time we spoke. We did a lot of nerding out last time, which we'll probably do today, listeners. He's a fellow social worker and wisdom maker and wisdom provider, but also we're going to get personal today. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this myself. Yeah. So today, as you all heard in the intro, we're going to be talking with Alan about both his personal journey and experience with early onset Parkinson's, but also the ways that has intersected with his professional training in counseling and social work and how he's sort of married the personal wisdom and the professional wisdom to, in his latest book, Counseling Persons with Parkinson's Disease, but also just in his approach to navigating his own life and the way in which he supports fellow folks with Parkinson's disease. But Alan, as I do with all my guests, I want to start way back. I want you to go in the way back machine and start to unpack for me a little bit the first time you remember experiencing grief in your life as a child or young adult and helping us understand, did you recognize it as grief or the adults in your life supporting, encouraging explicitly or implicitly or maybe discouraging? And what do you think that taught you about grief? Because I know you went on to study that in your professions and have a certain vantage point. But what do you remember about those earliest experiences of grief? Two things come to mind immediately. One, as is often the case, I suspect, involved a loss of a pet. I think I was in the second or third grade, perhaps, maybe fourth grade. And we have a beloved dog who got out of our yard underneath the fence and was hit by a car. And my family and I were on our way to the movies and we drove by and our dog was lying in the street. And that, you know, had a, uh, a remarkable effect on me. And I just remember feeling what I could identify as being the first really heavy, heavy grief experience. You know, this beloved thing that had been my companion was now gone. I was shocked. I didn't know what to do, et cetera. And then I moved around a lot as a kid. And I can remember moving from Plano, Texas to Atlanta, Georgia at the end of sixth grade and feeling a real sense of loss, excitement about moving to a new place, but also a sense of loss of friends and neighbors and sports teams and things that I'd invested in. So those are two that come to mind. Yeah. With your dog or even with the move, do you recall, were your parents acknowledging that it was a loss? Were you showing emotion? Were they okay with folks showing emotion? What do you think you learned about, I call those early grief beliefs. What do you think you learned when you look back at that time? I think my parents were open to us expressing ourselves pretty readily and grief experiences included. I do remember, though, even as as a young boy, sort of being socialized away from doing that, right? And so whatever messages I was getting or was permitted to have, getting or, or behaviors I was permitted at home, I soon learned that the culture was not as amenable to those, particularly for young boys and for men. And so I suspect, although I wasn't aware of it at the time, looking back, I suspect that I did what a lot of people do and certainly a lot of boys and men do. I I went into uh, let me get busy mode and sort of invest in other things and keep it out of mind. And, you know, all the things that we know are are not helpful over the long (laughs) haul. 
in my case, and I think in many people's cases, uh, we, we learn those at pretty young ages because of the, the cultural expectations and norms that you push against all the time, but that many people are still experiencing. Yeah, you guys are already going to see. We're going to be nerding out. You know, we talked about narrative, and I do make visible that I asked that question because we all have beliefs and they're operating all the time. And until we can make visible what they are and then be asked with curiosity, is this a belief that's serving me or not? Then we can't do anything about it. So I always ask those questions and I appreciate the way that you understood not just the family messages, but the broader cultural context to which you might have learned something that maybe didn't serve you so well in your grief. Yeah. I also appreciate the way Alan, that you pointed out this idea of experiencing loss and excitement at the same time when you talked about moving. So often, again, culturally, we like to do everything in binary, either joy or sadness, et cetera. And I think you really made visible this notion that we can grieve things even that we choose or even that we're excited about and to allow ourselves the complexity to vacillate, for instance, between excitement in a new town and sadness over familiarity and friends and comfort. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I, that experience uh, entailed both of those ends of the spectrum, if you will, and, and many, many more have as well. And I think, as you said well, the the expectation is an either-or scenario. You, you cannot be devastated on the one hand and yet also hopeful or excited on the other or, or move back and forth between those sets of experiences when, in reality, most of us do that, whether we're aware of it or not. In all contexts and domains of our lives, not just around grief and loss, but in lots of ways, our emotional range is much more sophisticated and nuanced than culturally we're led to believe. So I'm always railing against that. As my listeners know, they're probably like, oh, there Lisa goes again. And is my favorite word, and it's my next tattoo. And I really think we need to do that. The reason I think we need to do it is I think so much of the suffering we experience, and and I think we'll talk about this perhaps even in your coming to grips with the diagnosis that you've experienced. But I think the importance of bringing this complexity and nuance to our emotional landscape is so important because when we experience it, which we all do in lots of ways, but it's not represented out in the ways in which people talk about it or literature or movies or anything, then we start to feel pathologized, like there's something wrong with us. That's right. And I think when we're at our most vulnerable, which is what happens to us in, in a state of loss, is precisely when we need the affirmation that what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what you're wrestling with, what you're wanting, your ambivalence, all of the above and more is not only acceptable, but it's normative. Yeah. But we don't learn that. No. And we're not encouraged to, to lean into those understandings. No. It's one of the many, many reasons I'm so excited you're on the show today, because I know you and I share that value and that belief. And I know you try to carry that forward in all the work that you do as a professor and at the UT School of Social Work and your writing and your work. But before we get to that, which I can't wait to share with folks, some of the wisdoms that you shared in your latest book and your philosophy about counseling people, particularly people with a chronic or a terminal illness. But I want to invite you to share your story of how it is that you arrived to learn about your diagnosis and in particular sort of help us see or make visible the ways in which that loss became apparent to you right in the beginning. In your book, you talked about noticing some symptoms, going to one doctor, your primary doctor said, hmm, and I'm not so sure about this. It's my job to worry, don't worry, but also I need you to go see somebody. If you are willing to tell us in a little bit of detail, whatever you're comfortable with, 
what happened when you walked into, I think you referred to them as Dr. T's office that day. Can you take me back to that time? Sure. It was the fall of 2016, 48 years old and married for 27, 28 years and cooking along with two young children, mid-career, everything firing on all cylinders. And I'm sitting at my desk in my campus office one morning, sipping coffee and typing, writing as I usually do. And I noticed a faint twitch in my left index finger. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting and didn't pay much attention to it. I uh, attributed it to drinking too much coffee, which I am prone to do, (laughs) being excited about what I was writing, all of that. And that afternoon, it continued. And so I mentioned it the following day because it, it continued the following day as well. I mentioned it to Tracy, my wife, and she's always been our designated health person in the family. She's always been the warrior about health, if you will. And she said, you know, it's probably nothing, but you might as well go and get it checked out just to make sure. And so I made an appointment with my primary care physician. She's been Tracy's and my doctor for many years. Didn't think a whole lot more about it, but I went in to see her and I'd been Googling symptoms. I'm a researcher. And so I I do research. WebMD, the best, worst thing thing that has ever happened to the world. You could ever do. I know that intellectually, but on an emotional level, I was drawn in. Well, we need to know. I mean, uncertainty and ambiguity, as you've come to learn, is really a struggle for us. Yeah, especially when it's health and especially when you start to go down those paths of what if. And and so I walked into my doctor's office, and again, she and I have known each other a long time, and we're playful. And I said, you know, I'm here for you to tell me that I don't have Parkinson's or ALS. And she sort of chuckled and said, well, you know, let's see what's going on. And she gave me an exam and made me do a number of things that neurological exams involve. And, you know, her playfulness turned pretty quickly to a more serious tone and look on her face. And she said, you know, Alan, I'm sorry, but I can't tell you you don't have Parkinson's or ALS. I want you to see a neurologist. And it would be unlikely for you to have either one but I can't tell you you don't. And that's sort of where it started. So she referred me to a a movement disorder specialist, very seasoned doctor in town, been here a long time, but it was about a month before I could get in to see him. And so I went home and I was nervous by now and called a good friend of mine who's a physician in town. And I said, this is what's going on. I'm freaking out. Could you help me get in to see somebody? And he made a couple of phone calls and he uh, got me in to see a neurologist that day. This neurologist, very competent, very kind human being and and clinician, was not experienced with Parkinson's, worked on other areas of neurology. She gave me a thorough examination and said, you know, you have a physiologic tremor. It's benign. Don't worry about it. Go live your life. Well, I wanted to hug her and my wife wanted to hug her. I thought this was the best thing I could have ever hoped for. Thank you. One of those moments where life begins again, you know. But something told me to keep that appointment with the movement disorder specialist. I knew my body wasn't right. And as I started paying closer attention to it, the stiffness on my left side, my left forearm and wrist, Parkinson starts on one side of your body and with progression, it it goes to the other side. And so, you know, what I had attributed to being the result of overdoing it at the gym or pushing 50 or, you know, the things that you just assume, well, this is what it feels like when you start to turn 50 or something. Those were explained away when I started looking at my symptoms more closely and learning about Parkinson's. Anyway, so I kept the appointment, went in to see the neurologist about a month later. He gave me an exam and, and said, you know, 
what worries me is that I think you're in the early stages of Parkinson's disease. He said, I rarely do this because the clinical exam is, is almost always definitive, but I want you to have a, a brain imaging scan called a DAT scan, which will confirm or disconfirm the clinical diagnosis. He said, I expect it to come back confirming. But, you know, you hold on to this sort of ounce of hope and they've gotten it wrong. I mean, you know, this isn't going to happen to me. I've done all the right things and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a week or so later, we learned the news and that's where the, the saga began. So you were 48. This is... 48, six, 2016. Five years ago. Yeah, coming up on five. Five years in October. Five years in October. When we come back, Alan shares how he was navigating in the early days of his diagnosis, who in his family he did and didn't share it with. And he also shares a beautiful experience he had of releasing the physical shock of receiving the diagnosis. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Alan Cole. So there you are. You're maybe at home or at work, but it's been a week. You probably have already had the sinking feeling this is going to be the news and you get the news. In that interim between that first visit to your primary doc where she said, hmm, and that call or email or whatever you got confirming, yes, this is Parkinson's. When you look back now, were you in just pure shock? Were you beginning to grieve? When you look back at that time, you and your wife, how were you all conceiving of this? Well, I think we were both grieving because we know enough. My wife's a medical social worker by training. I, I've been in the social work world a long time myself. We knew in our heads that everything was pointing to this being definitive diagnosis. The, the doctor who diagnosed me was among the top neurologists in town, well-regarded, well-seasoned. He knew what he was looking at. And so the one side of us and probably the bigger side of us knew that. But you know how grief and loss work. They give you these glimpses of hope until you don't have reason to hope, and then you have to find other reasons to hope. So I wasn't surprised. I'll tell you a quick story. It's in the book. I'd gone to get a massage because my primary care physician wanted me to do that. She said, let's loosen you up. You're tied on your left side, your forearm, your wrist, your hand. Let's go work on that and see if we can get it moving. And so I started seeing this wonderful massage therapist. And I was lying on the massage table when my phone rang. And ordinarily, I wouldn't answer it, but I was expecting a call. And so I asked her if I could take it. She knew what was going on from the beginning had sort of walked with me those first two or three, four weeks as we were waiting, took the call and it was the doctor. And he said, you know, Alan, it's, uh, he said his name and he said, I wanted to tell you that unfortunately the the news we expected is confirmed. You, you do have Parkinson's disease. And that was the first time it sort of hit me in the fullness of, of how it hit me. And the massage therapist came back into the room and you know, I told her that the news had not been good. It was what I was expecting, but disappointing nonetheless. And she said, you're, you know, you're welcome to just leave, do whatever you need to do. And I said, you know, I appreciate that, but I, I, I feel at peace here and I just want to stay. And so I stayed and she gave me a massage and, and that was my sort of first moments of living on this side of that, of that loss. And then, then I got in the car and went home and, and told Tracy and she wasn't surprised, but we both wept and held on to each other. And I think that was sort of, again, the first 
formal, if you will, sort of beginning to what we had already begun in our way of grief a number of weeks before. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I know so many of my listeners, and I have people in my personal life who've gone down that diagnosis road with a chronic, sometimes terminal illnesses, and that early time, that uncertainty and the ambiguity. I mean, the entire process is no fun, but I know firsthand and I think people can appreciate. I'm curious to just reflect out loud. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which we don't attend to our bodies very well when we're under grief and loss and how our nervous systems get activated. So I think it's quite interesting and somewhat beautiful that you were in a massage room getting a massage at that time because I can imagine that actually helped in some ways soothe all of, I'm sure, the sympathetic nervous system that was ready to run or fight. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I didn't know what a gift that was at the time. And you know this as well as anyone, you, you don't prepare to hear news like that. But when you do, it's it's wonderful if you have the people around you, you need to be around you or the the setting that you want to be in. And, and that worked out for me. Yeah. Touch in general. I just think that sensation of human yeah. contact. Yeah. In music and candles and, you know, things that relax us. And yeah. I think it made a difference. Yeah. I'm having a flashback to the exact opposite scenario where I was in the bright lights of an ER room with the scan up on the wall and I'm sitting in the little tray bed next to my husband and the oncologist, the ER oncologist is saying, see that? I'm like, his brain, he said, no, that's a the grapefruit-sized brain tumor that has shifted his brainstem. And I just remember, I actually now, when I look back, I remember thinking like, how is this where this news is happening? So not that we can choose or how we prepare, that wasn't the point of my story, but I'll sprinkle in today and throughout this season, hopefully you're hearing me talk more and more about the ways in which we don't need to just attend to our minds and to our hearts, but also to our bodies, because our bodies are just a vessel to care for us, but they send signals and make it sometimes more difficult for us to do the work of grief and loss, which is, we're going to talk a little bit about your philosophy, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, there's so many directions, so many questions I want to go with. I want to talk about this particular experience of ambiguous loss, which I think is what you would describe as one of the primary types of grief that happens with someone with a disease like Parkinson's. And I know in your book, you reference sort of the philosophical, I can't remember the name of the philosopher who sort of thinks about the five types of loss that you experience in ambiguous. Do you remember the name of that? Bobby Carell. Maybe. I just think it's important to make this visible because I think we think of so much culturally, again, about grief and loss of course, related mostly to death or even the grief and loss that maybe care partners or caregivers have, but the patients themselves or the people with the illness or injury, whatever, themselves experience loss. They talked about this person you mentioned in your book, the loss of wholeness, the loss of certainty, the loss of control, the loss of freedom to act, and the loss of familiarity. How did you come to experience those or understand them. Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're intermingled, right? Yeah. And they 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 sort of loop in to one another and out of one another and and dovetail back. I mean, you can use whatever metaphor works <laughs> for you, but I mean, I think the point in any of these sort of philosophical or clinical understandings is that when you lose something or someone that you love deeply or is such a part of you, you lose in ways that you don't ever even imagine the capacity to lose. And so for me, you know, using my own sort of language, it, it it was the loss of a dream or a plan. I think most of us plan to be healthy for a long time and we have dreams tied to that. There's a loss of identity as a healthy person. 
which I'll get into if you want to yeah. later, but, you know, with Parkinson's and, and diseases like that, there are many misperceptions about it. And so you start to wonder, you know, how am I going to be seen? And therefore, how am I going to see myself? Who am I now as a... I mean, the loss of our identity is so As crucial. a person with a, a chronic illness. Over time, there's the loss of mobility or functioning. There's the loss, potential loss of professional and social standing that you worry about. You know, all of that and more began quickly coming together. And, you know, for about 10 months, 10 and a half months, I retreated to silence, didn't tell anyone about my diagnosis. My wife knew, my editor knew. We were working on a book together, this book. We weren't working on this book, but it became this book. One or two close friends in the medical community knew and no one else knew. My children didn't know, my parents didn't know, my colleagues didn't know, friends and neighbors. And so I say that to say that, and again, it's not unusual given the sort of social expectations around loss, that I suffered in silence by and large for nearly a year before I began telling people about it, which transformed the experience in, in ways that are very positive and constructive that, that we can talk about. But that first better part of a year was a, a very dark time. And so I was wrestling with all these losses and, and trying to figure out who I am and where I go. This and is I, this meaning-making. Meaning-making, exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. worried, you know, how long am I going to be able to work? Am I going to be able to put my kids through college? They're 10 and 8 at the time. Is my wife going to find me less attractive? Is, it, is this disease going to affect our intimacy? I mean, all the things that go through your mind. And you were grappling with that all on your own. Were you all seeking professional counseling or help at that time? I, I had a therapist that I was okay. talking to about it, which was a godsend. But that was for an hour a week. Right? I know. You know, yeah, and, what are you going to do with the rest of your waking goodness, hours? Thank goodness I had it. And, yeah. and she helped me tremendously, tremendously. But I had to get to a point where I could talk about it. I had to accept it enough to talk about it myself and then to invite other people into that conversation. Because you knew once you opened the door, that was going to even influence your own understanding of yourself and your own loss and experience the minute people start mirroring back or That's right. behaving. You can't unring that bell, no. as I said to Tracy. <laughs> exactly. You know, once it's out, it's out. And you'll understand all this, you know, as well as anyone, but, you know, this was my stuff, quote unquote, right? I'm, I'm putting on to other people my fears and, and, and my biases and things that, that I'm coming to terms with, once I became public, almost to a particular example, all of which I feared hasn't come to pass. I mean, just I the opposite has happened. But when you're in that, that dark place, that fearful, vulnerable place, and don't know where to go, you can't see any of that. Our stories become, I mean, I talk about this all the time. Again, people are like, broken record, Lisa. But this is why I'm always trying to make things visible. And I think one of the most useful therapeutic tools is for people to sort of say out loud whatever is happening because our thoughts and our emotions are very convincing when they're only in the echo chamber of our own mind. Well said. You know, it's well like, said. I'm going to write that down. Okay, well thank said. you. Right, so everything feels true with a capital T. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you say it out loud and then you have a total release, but you have some space between you and your thought and your emotion. When you are suffering in silence, when you are allowing the thoughts to ruminate and rumble around in your brain and in your heart, they almost become your identity. They become a truth, again, with a capital T. And when you have a therapist or counselor or a trusted friend or your spouse or your journal, 
or whatever it is that you have, you can start to create some space and then choose what kind of relationship you want to have with that thought or emotion. Is it serving me? Is there a hole in that story? Could it be that my friends aren't going to make my worst fears come true? Could it be that they're going to show up in a different way? So I appreciate you making visible the way you found your way out of that inner self-worry cycle into the world. The other reason I asked you, I should have prepped you maybe, but to talk about whether or not you sought professional help is help for the helpers is just such a hard thing. I was a clinical director at the time that my husband passed away of a big nonprofit. I was doing therapy and I remember returning to work in two weeks and seeing patients and struggling on my own thinking like, I should know how to do this. I'm an expert at this. Why can't I do this? I Thankfully, I snapped myself out of that toot suite and got myself to continue seeing a therapist. But you were already seeing a therapist. Did you have any struggles about, I should know how to do this and I don't need help? Or were you in a space where you're like, hey, I will take whatever support I can get? Have you had any sort of that? Well, at my better moments, you know, I was more receptive and insightful about, you know, we all need help. support, right. But, you know, harking back really to the way we began, I, I think these, these scripts that we use for how we're supposed to deal with difficult things, losses included, get adopted pretty early. And even for those of us who are trained in clinical matters and have spent a lifetime, you know, as learners on that road, we don't always go there immediately. And so, you know, my wife, I, I, I talk about this in the book, Tracy deserves a lot of the credit. On the one hand, giving me the, the space and the time that I needed, but on the other hand, by example, sort of leading and pushing me into more vulnerability and saying, you know, people are going to care about you as much as they've ever cared about you. They're not going to dismiss you and, you know, not going to pity you. I, that's what I feared. I didn't want to be pitied or dismissed. We don't want your sympathy and pity. Right. We want your empathy, people. And, and she said, you know, it's going to be okay. And eventually I believed her. Yeah. Thank goodness for wise spouses. Thanks, Tracy. Shout out to you. The thing that we have, we all have to remember, I think even if you're not a clinician, if you're a mother or a father, you've always played a big sister or a mentor role, we get hooked on this idea that our wisdom and our identity and our value is caught up in us being the knowers or the supporters or the helpers. And one of the things that I've experienced over the course of needing help throughout my life, not just with the loss of my husband, I had some early traumas. I've, I've been seeking supports in different ways throughout my life, sometimes begrudgingly and sometimes with a air of should in my head that I shouldn't need it. But the more I do it, the better I become as a helper. Our capacity for empathy and compassion and to be helping in ways that actually serve people grows exponentially. And that's just my experience. But Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and the other piece to that that has been shown to me in, in spades is that on the one hand, everybody's dealing with something. We wear these masks and we, we put our, our sort of cleaned up version of ourselves on display most of the time. But all of us are carrying something. Some of us are carrying a lot of things. And what I discovered, you know, I, I started writing uh, about my experience on my blog and I wrote the book. And what I discovered was that people feel a little more willing to open up themselves about their own struggles to the extent they see other people doing it. And so, whereas on the one hand, I feared people would sort of push me away or because they were feeling awkward, not want to be with me and a part of my life as much anymore, just the opposite has happened. People have seemed to 
want more of a relationship. And that's been very life-giving for me. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful the way you said that. It's just such, we do all carry our own things. I returned to work, as I said, as a therapist. And my first client, first session, looked at me and said, because Ann Arbor is not that big of a town, so people knew, and said, how can I come tell you about my depression when this thing happened? And I said, your depression is the heavy thing that you're carrying. My job is to help carry the weight, shoulder the weight a little bit. So we're all doing that. And to your point, the more we see people model their own vulnerability and honor the fact that we can be happy and successful in some aspects of our life and carrying a a weight in another area of our life, again, helps us all feel seen and less unusual. It's more, we're making more normal because we're making visible the fact that we all have these different struggles. And when we have whatever spiritual growth or evolution that we have, people get to see that too because we've made it public and visible. And that's just as much of a gift, I think, as making our vulnerabilities public. Well said. And for me, it was it was also just one more point to make. I was teaching a bereavement course in the School of Social Work while I was in the Parkinson's closet. And for me, it became a, a, an issue of, of integrity and being transparent in ways that, that I taught my students, that I was teaching my children were, were high values for me as a, as a person and, and us as a family in the case of my kids. And so I got to the point where I just carrying the secret and, and the burdens that, that joined to that were much more painful and destructive than I imagined being public would ever be. And, and then, as we've talked about, that opened up this entire swath of new experiences that were life-giving and that continue to be. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Speaking of the wisdom that you gain that you might not have seen, I wanted to read this passage, if I can read to you in your own words from your book, I but I wanted that. to share it with our listeners. A reminder, there'll be a link in the show notes for the book, Counseling Persons with Parkinson's Disease. But you don't have to be someone who has or has a family member with Parkinson's disease. This book is both a beautiful vulnerability and intimacy of Alan sharing his story, but also the wisdom, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit about how we might approach in a clinical setting and others, folks who are experiencing this kind of ambiguous loss, whether it's Parkinson's or some other disease. But one of the things you talked about in the book, you talked about some insights you've gleaned from living this in your own life and also with your clinical hat on. You said, this approach to counseling follows from two insights I've gleaned. First, with a Parkinson's diagnosis comes a new life, one that remains disruptive, uncertain, replete with losses, and which brings serious challenges. However, life with Parkinson's also offers unanticipated opportunities for new wisdom, fresh insights, renewed commitments, and meaningful personal growth. Second, illness can be a transformative and constructive experience. I read that. You can see, I wish I was on a video here, y'all, but I underlined it, green sticky in my book that resonated so deeply with me, both parts. Maybe we'll talk about the first part first, which was just the ways in which you described this, I think, really captured ambiguous loss there, that it's because Parkinson's is degenerative, the right word to use for it, progressive and and degenerative, degenerative, but that it's disruptive, that there's so much uncertainty. And that, as we talked about before, there's these layers of losses, control, familiarity, et cetera, and challenges. You just made that so visible. And because you all know I'm an and person and I stand for AFCO, that's my life motto, another fucking growth opportunity, um, is you're able, I don't know how early on, but you're able to sort of see some wisdom that you've been able to gain and insight. 
I imagine that was not a light bulb aha moment where you switch from this is horribly disruptive to what a gift. I don't know if you would use the word gift, but can you tell us about holding those two truths at the same time? Yeah. I think the way I would talk about it is that on the one hand, having Parkinson's sucks. Over time, you face challenges that affect movement, they can affect your mood. Depression and anxiety can become part of the mix. It's not just a movement disorder, but there are non-motor symptoms too. It varies for everyone. We, we call it a disease of one because if you've seen one person with Parkinson's, you've seen one person. But there are these clusters of symptoms that, that ebb and flow. The medications are great. They last or, or they, they manage symptoms for many, many years, even decades. But it's a progressive disease. It doesn't get better. And so sitting in the pit of that reality takes a lot of emotional energy and, and sometimes physical energy, to your earlier point. And that's essential because that's part of the, the equation, if you will, with, with Parkinson's. But on the other hand, for me, I, I, I had to start asking a couple of questions. One was, assuming there's some things that I can't control in this and that there will be increasingly things I can't control in this, what can I control? You know, where is my agency? And I decided that one thing I can control, or at least work at controlling, is my attitude toward having Parkinson's and the ways in which I'm going to try to make it a constructive part of my life. Now, that's aspirational. It's not like that every moment or every no, day, some right? days you're swearing at the sure, sky or you're whatever. you're back in the pit. Yeah. But, but I think for me, a, a sort of commitment to that and holding myself to it and asking those in my closest circle to hold me to it has been helpful, right? I can't control a lot in this, but there are some things I can control. I can control the, the beautiful people that have come into my life. And I, I mean, I can control the access that I give those people. Facilitating those tonight. relationships. Yeah, yeah. facilitating is a better word. But I can allow myself, I can control the access I give to people. And that's been really helpful because those relationships in the community that is Parkinson's has brought beauty and meaning and relation relationship quality into my life that I never would have imagined possible before. That's genuinely mean that. And that's a gift. I mean, I, I am comfortable with using that language. It's, it's been a gift. So that, that was the first piece. And, and the second piece, which gets at the meaning making that you mentioned earlier, was related, but, but how can I use this for something good? You know, having Parkinson's isn't good. Losing your husband isn't good. But then you're left with the agency question again. What, what can I control or what can I do in order to try to make some meaning and to, and to, to contribute something? And for me, it was, it was becoming involved in the Parkinson's community, raising money, raising awareness, providing education, writing. That became part of my new identity and a means for which I make meaning as a, as a human being. Much in the same way I suspect your journey has involved with the work that you do. Yeah. There's so much beauty there. And I want to say to folks who, because I've had a similar conversation on this podcast with other practitioners who've experienced grief over the years. And I just want to say, if you're newly diagnosed with an illness or you're newly in grief over a death loss, it's okay to listen to us and think these fools don't know what they're talking about. That's okay. Just bookmark this show and come back to it in six months or a year. But for those of you who are somewhere along the path, whatever that path is, I want to remind you or invite you to sort of open up to this wisdom that Alan just shared with us. And I do think it parallels the journey that I've been on. I would do anything I could to 
not have Eric have died. It'll be 10 years this summer. And for me, in lots of iterations, not just with Reimagining Grief in the show, a nonprofit I created, other work I've done, has really allowed me not to just reshape and evolve my own identity, which is such a huge part of our loss. But I think about it for me in terms of this is one of the ways in which I get to carry Eric's memory forward, even if it's not that I'm explicitly talking about him, although y'all know I talk about him all the time because he was balls, and you'd probably love him more than me. My family sure did. When we come back, Alan shares how his identity as someone living with early onset Parkinson's continues to adapt and change over the past five years in ways, frankly, he hadn't anticipated. He also shares some of his clinical insights about what is most helpful when working with patients like him. As I mentioned, since we recorded this episode, Alan is releasing two new books, including In the Care of Plenty, a book of poetry on this subject, and he's given me permission to share one of them with you. The poem is called Sojourning. Sojourning. To live is to incur losses. Our sources of security and pleasure, values and purpose, even our self-understanding. This is how we mourn. We create spaces to hold what we lose, where we keep memories and gratitude, learnings and hopes, each uniquely ours. There we sojourn with them, experiencing their presence when we have the need, returning as we desire. This is how we heal, sojourning with our losses, forming and nurturing new relationships, investing in life once again. The ill lose more than some, yes, but losses can come with gains, previously unseen or relegated to the realm of dreams. There are lives to touch, new experiences to have, memories to make, affections to share. So invest fully, love deeply, sojourn often, stay aware of joy. If you've been a listener of the show or follow my work at Reimagining Grief, you know that I'm passionate about the power of narratives in all their creative forms to help us make sense of these transformational experiences we have in our lives, including loss in all its forms. That's why I'm excited to share that I am deep in the throes of finishing my first book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. This book is emerging to be a beautiful, easy-to-digest vessel of all the wisdom I've gained over the years as a social worker, narrative therapist, widow, grief guide, and even as host of this show. This book isn't geared towards a specific type of loss or a specific phase in your grief. Instead, I'm writing this book for all the grievers who haven't felt seen and held in their grief. You can stay tuned for sneak previews of the book, news about current and future guests of this podcast, services I'm offering, the latest on the books I'm reading and loving, and so much more by signing up for the Reimagining Grief not-so-regular newsletter at www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash newsletter. Why that title, you might be wondering? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule, and neither is this newsletter. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. One of the things I wanted to pick out of what you just said, Alan, that I thought was so 
wise. And again, it takes us stepping back from our thoughts as being true with a capital T. It, it requires us to give some space is you asked yourself what my friend, the wise and wonderful Gloria Chan Packer taught me the other day, is this a gravity problem? So you can't change the fact that you have Parkinson's. And sometimes we get so stuck at trying to rail against a gravity problem. You're not going to change that fact. You may not be able to even change some of the symptom evolution, depending on, you know, what the access to resources are. Our energy becomes sapped. Our identity becomes withered because we are sort of fighting against these big gravity problems. And there's no judgment there. We have to go through that time. You know, we have to sort of try to roll that gigantic boulder up the hill or, you know, do whatever we need to do to feel like we tried. And then part of that process, maybe with the help of a counselor or therapist or a trusted friend or just time, we start to ask ourselves those that shift, which is what you have done, which is, I'm not going to change this fact of my diagnosis. So then what? What is it I want to do with the time that I do have? How do I want to reshape? Because you're still carrying a lot of your wisdom and the it's not like you're there's nothing of the Alan you were before. You're just an evolving Alan, which by the way, we're always all evolving, major life milestone or not. These are invitations for us to evolve more quickly. But you really asked yourself, okay, well now what? What am I going to do with this time? What am I going to do with the fact that this thing has happened to me and how can I make meaning? Yeah. Yeah, and it's a process, and it ebbs and flows. But I think over time, and again, one thing I want to stress is you can't do this alone, right? In the first year, I tried to do it by myself, and I spun my wheels. But as I invited people into my life, and they invited me into theirs, and these relationships bloomed, I discovered more and more that I could live with the both and. You don't have to live with one at the exclusion of the other. You can be experiencing loss and looking forward to really exciting things that are going on in your life by virtue of having that loss. That doesn't mean you're excited about the loss. You would do anything to unring the bell. But given that you can't do that and you you have a choice to make about how you proceed, my experience has been that to the extent that I can live into that sort of opportunity that comes with loss, the better I fare. Yeah. How have you explicitly or implicitly invited your daughter into this way of seeing the news of your diagnosis and how you're spending your time and living your life. I know when you were diagnosed, they were quite young, eight and 10, but now they're teenagers if I'm doing my math right. 15 and 13. 15 and 13. Whew. Hang in there, man. Hang in there. Thank you. What do you think you are sharing explicitly or implicitly? What lessons are they learning as they participate with this sort of evolving version of you and how you're making meaning with this diagnosis? Yeah, I appreciate the question very much. As I talk about in the book, maybe the the final impetus, if you will, for me saying enough is enough is I wanted to find a way to use this experience such that my daughters could learn from my experience that you can face hardships in life and life can still be good. You can you can develop you can resilience. Joy. You can find joy in the midst of heartache or suffering or hardship, whatever word you might use. That it's a both and because they're going to experience their own hardships, right? We all do. And I thought, how can I be the best parent I want to be to them if there's this huge facet of my life that I'm not sharing with them and that they're not understanding because I'm not talking about it. 
they knew something was going on. I mean, kids always do, right? Because you can't hide it. Physically, my symptoms were so mild, they, they didn't know. But the dynamics change when you're dealing with a profound loss. And so trying to demystify that and say, this is what daddy's dealing with, and I'm going to be okay, and we're going to do this as a family. And I write about this in the book. My experience has been that Parkinson's is a part of our family. The kids have gotten involved in efforts to raise money and provide education, and we've included them in that. At the same time, it doesn't define us. It doesn't consume us. We talk about it when we need to. Humor is a, is a big part of our family. We, we joke about it. We have lots of levity about Parkinson's, and, and that's okay for us. That's who we were before Parkinson's, and it's who we are since. We've learned to laugh at some of the craziness that goes on with life with a chronic illness, and that's, that's okay. And I, and I hope, I believe, and I hope this is accurate, that my having Parkinson's is benefiting them in some ways that may not be available to them otherwise. I, I hope that's the case. I love that, Alan. I love the way you understood clearly, even though, you know, it took you some time, but you understood clearly that in some ways, though, you thought you might have been protecting them by keeping it a secret or kids know and everybody, anybody who's close to you know that things change, but also that we do so much to protect our kids. And of course, let me just say, you know, I've had Rachel Carnahan Mesker, who's a pediatric palliative social worker on the show. And, you know, there's age appropriate things to tell children. So please don't misunderstand my request for you to be transparent and vulnerable. But at an age appropriate way, not only by including our kids with whatever level of detail we can, continues to foster a loving and nurturing relationship between you, parent and child. But as you said, Alan, none of us gets out of this life without experiencing multiple layers of hardships and suffering, some of us more than others. And when we can see people in our lives navigating those waters honestly with pain and suffering and swearing and whatever it needs to go, but also with grace and humility and introspection, then that's an education you're giving your kid that's beyond anything that's both going to make them more empathetic and compassionate humans for the people in their lives, and they're going to be less likely to show up pitying with sympathy. But also it means they're going to have a really embodied experience about how they might choose to walk through whatever hardship they face as they navigate their life. So I love that reframe. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's really lovely. I think as we begin to close the conversation, I wanted to just have you give us a little bit of insight, if you will, about, I know it's kind of a big topic, so just thinking maybe a little bit on a high level, we can spend the next few minutes talking about this. You write in the book a little bit about mirroring different ways of clinical approaches, but also about your own approach to what you're calling loss-based counseling, LBC, you refer to in the book. And one of the things that I loved about it, of course, because I nerded out on the narrative, well, there's many things, and as a clinician, but one of the aspects that really struck me maybe we could start there as you explain loss-based counseling, is that while some more traditional therapies, although I think it's changing, you know, I was trained in, in the social work and in, in narrative therapy in particular, but I'm thinking even in schools of psychology and other places, sometimes those models, those modes of clinical insights were really sort of top-down clinician expert client as the receiver of your wisdom downloading in a unidirectional place. 
in my graduate school, University of Vermont, shout out to the Catamounts. Catamounts, we couldn't even call our clients clients. We had to, does not roll off the tongue, but we would say the people with whom we consult or collaborate or something like that. We need a better word for that. But I love that you talk about that in this loss-based counseling approach. You're collaborating and partnering and inviting the folks that you serve, whether you call them clients or patients, whatever, but to bring forth their own wisdom and their own knowing about what works for them. Why was that important for you to write about and and to think about? Yeah, so I I guess sort of by disposition, I I think human experience is, is really important. And we are individuals and our experience is very infinitely. And yet there's a lot of commonality among us if we spend enough time talking about ourselves and listening to one another. And so for me, the best approaches to clinical work, not to mention the work of being human, are those that that really value reciprocity and mutual offerings of oneself, if you will. Now, clearly in a professional relationship, and I talk about this in the book, the, let's call the person the clinician, the social worker, the counselor, the therapist, the clinician has expertise that's really important. I mean, that's why people see therapists. They expect some expertise and some wisdom and guidance born of that expertise. And that's really important. But equally important, in my view, is the fact that the client is an expert on himself, herself, themselves in ways that the clinician never will be. And so for me, where the magic happens, where the healing happens, where the growth happens is when we sort of engage in this sort of reciprocal dance where sometimes the clinician leads Sometimes the the client leads and the clinician follows with this sort of fundamental commitment to the value and the uniqueness of the the individual's experience. And I think, I mean, we're more and more aware of that in clinical training and, and social work programs, et cetera, than we've ever been. And that's a good thing. But we can fall back into these sort of ways of operating where we presume, and I'll say we as, as a clinician or, or educator of clinicians, that we sort of know what's best. And we, we really don't. We, we know some things to suggest and for clients to try on for themselves, but the client's always going to know what's best for themselves, in my view. Yeah. I think the clients have an inner wisdom. And as you said, I'm hopeful that the pendulum is continuing to swing. And I loved that metaphor of the dance where it's taking turns leading Um, I think one of the gifts of a clinician, besides the expertise in the sort of classroom training, but having seen tens, hundreds, thousands of people over the years, is we get to start to see an arc of some of the things that are normative, some of the pitfalls people fall into, and so that we can bring that level of wisdom. I think the other thing that we offer, I've been a more traditional therapist. The folks that listen to the show know I'm also a grief guide. And one of the roles that I bring forward, and you and I talked about this at the beginning of the show, is a counselor, a therapist, whoever the clinician is, in this case, helping somebody through their loss journey, can just be that outside voice, can help hold up a mirror and reflect back to that person. I hear you echo chambering around and around this belief. And I don't know if you even know that you have but this belief, but can I make it visible to you? And I can't tell you how many times in session I've said to people, I've said like, I didn't even know I believed that thing. And that's hurtful to me. And I didn't know it. Which is, by the way, exactly why clinicians ourselves need a counselor or therapist of ourselves, because 
even though we can do that when we're holding space and bearing witness for someone else's story, when we're just talking to ourselves in our own head, we're back to that echo chamber. And so we need somebody to look us back in the eye and say, I wanted to just reflect back what I just heard. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think this mirror metaphor is is perfect because it captures exactly what you're saying. I think the one additional thing I would say is that, and this harks back to narrative, we both love narrative, is, you know, as we tell our story and as we hear ourselves telling it and retelling it and telling it in slightly different ways, as that evolution of the story takes place, we understand it better and we understand ourselves better. We are able to examine our story from different angles of vision, if you will. And that can only happen, in my view, in a in an interpersonal sort of dialogue. It can't be a monologue. I, right. I, I've done the monologue. <laughs> it, it has its limits. But you need a dialogue and, and a conversation, a narrative, a shared narrative. And I think this is where counselors, therapist types really are invaluable. Absolutely. Well, Alan, I cannot believe an hour has gone by. I knew we were going to just get lost in our shared love of all things narrative and empathy and showing up and support with one another. And I just appreciate the way you showed up today, really willing to, just like you did in your book, show up with your whole humanity and your whole heart and to talk about how you, your wisdom and your story is evolving and how you're using that in service of the people in your personal life and your professional life and now the listeners to the show all around the world. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure. Well, the pleasure was mine. Really an honor to be here. Thank you for the work that you do. It's invaluable. I can't imagine how many people you help on a daily basis by telling your story and inviting others to tell theirs, if not to you, to those they love and who support them. So really an honor to be a small part of that today and look forward to maybe coming back if you invite me. Absolutely. I would love that. Thanks so much. Well, as we close this beautiful conversation today, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. I love hearing from listeners of the show. So after this, I'm asking you to head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might need it most. Well, my friends, I hope you learned as much as I did from my conversation with Alan Cole today. His warmth and wisdom on the meaning-making journey of his own diagnosis has given me a lot to think about. I'll make sure to drop a link to all of his books in the show notes for today's episode. You can also follow Alan on Twitter at PDWise. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds once again for creating the music for the show today. And I also want to thank that team over at StudioPod for helping me produce it. Thank you again for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Alan Cole. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.